Hey folks, I just wanted to give you a heads up and let you know that on today's episode, we do talk a little bit about suicide and depression. We always leave some information in the notes for you if you or somebody you know is going through these things. Most importantly, we hope what you learned today is that it's okay to talk about it. Hey, I'm Don Amaro, and this is Through the Fire, a podcast about overcoming adversity, reframing misfortune, and celebrating courage. On this show, you're going to meet some really incredible people who have been through some heavy stuff, but they've come through the other side. And the hope is that you're encouraged and inspired by the words that you hear. My guest today is a Canadian musician, car accident survivor, and champion of mental health. Rob Nash joins me today on Through the Fire. Well, Rob Nash, thank you so much for joining me here today on Through the Fire. We are longtime buds, yes. I think. Would you describe us as longtime buds? Yeah. I, you, you're good in small doses. <laughs> so we toured together for a minute, and so I didn't quite get tired of you. And that was Slightly it. longer than a minute. It was, it was a good three months. Three months? Do you remember was the year? No. <laughs> 2014. I have a head injury, bro. <laughs> right. We're going to get into that head injury in a bit, but, <laughs> but I... I uh, I remember it was uh, spring, early summer of 2014, and uh, and you had called me up, and I didn't know you knew who I was at that point in time. I'm sure I think word got around you about you know what I was up to and sort of my you know artistic you know growth and stuff, and and you had said, hey, you know we're doing this project where our guitar player just stepped away, and wondering if you want to come in, and and uh, I had already known about you, and uh, eyewitness was your previous long time ago project. Yeah. Uh, and uh, um, so when you called me, I was like, oh, cool, I, I know this guy. Yeah. And you talked and you invited me on the tour, and that's that's where it was, began in 2014. 2014. And how many, you said three months? I think three months. So we started September, October, November, and I think I stepped away just at the end of November. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. you had me shredding on guitar. Shredding. Which I am not a shredder. I, we, I can't remember if it was the Saddle Dome or the MTS Center, but the other guitarist, Kyle, I remember... Like he is a guy that he's a shredder. Runs around and flips, flips his guitar yeah. around, and you were like, "He's not really playing, is he?" And I remember Johnny, our drummer, was like, "Oh, he's playing," and you're like, oh, "Yeah." Well, and then I quit. That's, that's probably. I think it was the last gig, and then I was like, "I'm, I'm out of here." <laughs> that's so funny. Um, you know, when I talk about uh, eyewitness, yeah, I, I think I told you this story before, but twenty, two thousand and one, okay, two thousand two, something, Dauphin, Manitoba. Wow. Yeah, going way back. Your band was there. You had that car. You had a car like a, yeah. I don't know what kind of car it was, but it was all decked out. Mm-hmm. And you were singing. And my first meeting of you was, you were in the crowd and you were singing. And you held the mic out to me and you had me sing along. Really? And you held them. So I said, I didn't know the words, but I <laughs> tried to sing along. It was like a phrase you were kept repeating. So I just sing along. And it was probably, I think I was totally off key. Of but, course. But that was, <laughs> knowing me. Um <laughs> And that was that was my first meeting of Rob Nash. Okay, wow, isn't that a cool memory? That's a minute ago then. Yeah, yeah, the uh, yeah, the, some of those festivals, you know, you get thrown in the mix, and uh, a lot of cool things happen. I didn't. You never shared that story with me. PT Cruiser was it? Was that what it was? No. Oh, was it PT? Tyler had one. He okay. tried to make a cool one like our other one. My friend, um, he you know he saw what I was doing with the band. And he was like, man, I want to do something with my life. But all I know is um, I'm, I love cars. And he said, but I want to do something special. And then he 
he came to me, he goes, I had a dream last night. And in the dream, I took my car, a Jetta, and I souped it up like a Fast and the Furious car. And I put your logo on your website and I went around promoting your band. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So he would, you know, go cruising and he'd go ahead of us before we would do a show and he'd cruise and people would come up, car lovers would come up and be like, oh, mm. cool car. And they'd be like, what's the, with the logo and the website? Oh, it's my buddy's band. And, you know, he'd hand out free tickets to shows and stuff. And it was cool that even a love for cars gave him a chance to, you know, tell a story and, and he, he got that taste of significance. So yeah, that was, that was my best friend in high school. Yeah. But uh, that was a minute ago. That was before <laughs> we even became live on arrival. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah. Live on arrival. That was your next yeah project after that. So, uh, going to 2014, I was on tour with you guys. Uh, I stepped away. The tour kept going, kept yes. running right up until I guess the pandemic, I would say, right? Like, or just before? Well, so we had done three albums as Eyewitness, and then um, we got that big opportunity that you think you're all waiting for, and that was we got a record deal, and there was an Eyewitness in the States, so we had to change our name, and we changed it to Live on Arrival, and it was intimidating. We went from, you know, some smaller studios in Winnipeg. I'm flowing out to Vancouver, and I'm walking through these hallways, and I'm looking at all these gold records. I'm like, where am I? And then you're sitting with these producers from L.A. and Vancouver, and they're like, we're going to make sure you're writing hits. Like, we're going to write an album together. And uh, <laughs> they're like, hey, so first song, what do you want to write about? And I was like, I met this homeless guy at a soup kitchen. I want to write about him. And they're like, okay. So we wrote a song called Hello Goodbye, and... Uh, I remember one of the guys was driving to my hotel that night. They're like, hey, that's cool that you got that off your chest, a song about a homeless person. But nobody on the radio wants to hear about homeless people. We need you to write hits. And uh, it was funny because uh, we had a massive launch party. We All the, you know, our label was, you know, flying out different radio stations and schmoozing them and limos and five-star hotels, mm-hmm. playing our music, saying this is going to be the next big thing. What you don't know as an artist is all those expenses, those limos and hotels you're going to pay for as an artist later. That's all coming out of your pocket at the end of the day. It's a loan. And then uh, the weekend before they released our song, um, they flew the like 55 biggest radio stations out to Vancouver. And I'm backstage at this this private club. And they're like, hey, we're going to introduce you. Just walk out and you know, uh, come out and we're going to introduce you. And... I, they're like, here he is, Rob Nash. And I walk out, and they had all these nurses <laughs> with, like, short skirts dancing around me. And I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, and I'm sure we'll get into this, but I was in a big car accident, and they were using it as a gimmick. Hmm. And uh, I was super upset because that was something very vulnerable part of my life, right? So, uh, yeah, but then there was this after party. It was chaos. It was like the big rock star life. And then uh, the following week, um, they released our song. And the song that everybody picked was the song about the homeless guy. And it went to number three in Canada. Mm. Just like that. A lot of it was BS, you know, because you have to have the right people around you that can schmooze with those radio stations. And Mm. you need some money behind you to make that happen. But, uh, yeah, Mm. all of a sudden we got songs in the top ten and we're touring with huge bands. That's a super cool journey. I I, I want to get there's some things you said like uh, you said significance a little while ago, yeah. and, and and there's I know that's a big part of your story, and I, and I, I want to get into that in just a second because I know where your story. Well, I wouldn't say where it began because I don't yeah. know your early early years, but I know there was like you said that that car accident. Um, 
Could would you would you take me back to that? What happened and, and re- let us know kind of what happened? Yeah, for night? sure. So I was, um, you know, I I grew up in small town Manitoba, um, very legalistic religious family, and uh, you know I wasn't allowed to listen to anything mainstream. But then I actually left to go to school somewhere else to a school I'd never seen before. I was on a scholarship and bursary and stuff, and I went out there and I played drums, not guitar at the time. And everyone was like, you play drums? I'm like, oh, can you play Guns N' Roses? Can you play Nirvana? And I was like, oh, I'm not allowed to listen to Wait, mom and dad aren't here. Maybe I can listen to this. And then I just got addicted to music. I was like, oh, just as a listener. But then I started playing guitar and then um, had a high school band just with talent shows. Never thought I'd do it for a living because my worst mark in school was music. I auditioned for the choir and I didn't make it because my voice wasn't good enough. But um, I was just obsessed with music. And I lived out at this school from 15 to 18, away from my family and everything. And then, um, yeah, when I was 17, uh, you know, you think you're indestructible. We went for a car ride. We were getting flowers for our dates for the, you know, the winter formal, you know, and we're flying back down these roads. My buddy, he only had his license for a few days and um, wasn't very experienced driver to say the least. And there was black ice and everybody else is going, you know, 40 kilometers an hour and we're going 120, you know, and yeah. he's pulling out passing cars. And we were like half a kilometer from our school and we pulled out to pass one last car and we got hit by a semi truck. And um, I was found with no pulse, not breathing. And, um, Yeah, obviously, I came back to life. The person that pulled up on the scene, the first person, just took a first responders course. So he resuscitated me. And I met him a few years ago, and he was the one that explained everything that he saw and resuscitating me. And he said he was trying to hold my skull together because once my heart started beating, like even if you're cut, you know, if your heart's not beating, blood's not flowing. So it doesn't come out really, you know. But once he resuscitated me, Blood started pouring out of my head because I had lost the side of my skull. Mm-hmm. And so he was trying to hold the skull together until the ambulance got there. How, how were your friends? Were they injured? Nobody was hurt. Just you. Just me, which is remarkable, mm-hmm. which is, you know, um, you know, even the guy that I was talking about with the car, you know, he was in the backseat with me. He was my best friend. And, uh, yeah, he was like, everybody thinks my story is the dramatic one because I came back to life. But, you know, he was the one that... Um, you know, he realized, like, it's almost more miraculous that he wasn't hurt, you know. Mm. And, uh, yeah, they brought me to the hospital and, you know. Um, Do you have memories of these things or oh, is this no, what you're told? No, I, I'm missing about three months. And so uh, they got me to the hospital. They rebuilt my skull with uh, titanium and a lot of surgery started. And, you're in the hospital this whole time? Yeah, yeah. And, um, um yeah, I woke up. I didn't know who I was or my parents and mm. just because of the brain damage. And then, um, yeah, and then they let me go home, but I was still like my sister talks about, you know, she was a hairdresser at the time and she came to cut my hair. She came back the next day and I didn't know she had been there the day before. I would get upset because I'm like, why are my friends visiting me? I'm, I was so alone. I was, you know, and they, my parents were like, all your friends came here yesterday. And then I was mad at my mm. parents. I'm like, why didn't you tell me they were here? And they were like, you hung out with them all day. And even I went back to school because I just wanted to be back with people, you know. Um, like, I understand what happens with, uh, over the last couple of years with COVID. Like, 
people being isolated, being away and can't be with your friends and you can't play sports. That was my life in grade 12 because I'm 6'5". I played a lot of sports and now I couldn't do any of those things. I'm alone. So I just wanted to go back to school even though the doctor said I shouldn't. I went back to school. I don't even remember now going back to school. Hmm. So there's about three months missing. But, you know, through that, everybody's throwing the cliches at you. You know, like, oh, you know, this was fate. I'm like, fate? Like, yeah, the, the bus had your name on it, you know. Um, I had some family that told me that God was mad with me, you know, because I'm a bad kid, so he spanked me with a semi. <laughs> uh, that made me angry. But the mm. most common thing people would say, and they still say to this day, and I know they say it with good intentions, but now I've met on our tour, met with tons of people in prison, hospitals, funerals, and people say this phrase, and it does way more damage than good. People always say, everything happens for a reason. Mm. And some people take that and, oh, what's the reason this happened? And they do something great with it. For me, it was like, and a lot of people, it's like, what's the reason this happened to me? Now I'm like, this is like a life lesson. And I'm like, so I was bitter. I was angry. I'm like, so if I, if I have no control, everything happens for a reason. So I, for two years, I was suicidal. I was hurting myself. Um, I didn't want to be alive. Nobody knew, none of my friends or family. And then somebody came up to me and said the most amazing thing, and it changed my life. He goes, you're trying to figure out the reason this happened to you, right? I'm like, yeah. He goes, I know what it is. I'm like, what's the reason? He goes, you were going too fast on an icy road. He's like, shit happens. What are you going to do with it? I'm like, oh. And that sounds simple. That set me free. I realized I'm not a puppet. I get to make some decisions. I'm like, what am I going to do with my life? And now what I tell people that I meet with on tour is I say, like, there's some good things that happen that just seem beyond coincidence, you know, for sure. But to say everything happens for a reason, I don't like that. I always say bad things don't happen for a reason. Bad things happen with potential. My accident had the potential to leave me angry, bitter, suicidal the rest of my life. Or there's a potential you can take your story and do something with it. So when I was done being angry, um, I was like, well, I got a second chance. Not everybody does. Maybe I should do something with it. And I was like, and I screamed at the sky, and I was like, I want to do something that matters. And I was like, and I thought I'd hear a voice inside of me telling me to, like, move to Africa and build a well, you know. And I would have done it, whatever I heard that in that moment, whatever prompting I felt. And what I felt was phone the semi-driver that hit you and tell me you're alive. And I was like, what? <laughs> so I phoned the police. I'm like, yo, can I get the number of the semi-driver that ran me over? And the cops were like, no. But uh, hmm. this voice wouldn't leave me alone, so I kept trying, and... Finally, one cop gave me his number, and I got a hold of this big trucker from uh, the U.S., and I said, do you remember that accident up in Canada? And he got real quiet. He's like, yeah. And I said, just felt that I should call you and tell you, like, I'm alive. Like, I'm okay. I made it. And he starts crying. He goes, I'm so sorry about your friend, though. I'm like, what friend? He goes, the one that died and, like, crushed his skull. I'm like, no, that's why I'm calling. That's me. Found out he hadn't driven a vehicle since that day, and I was like, but the important part of that story isn't what happened to him. It's what happened to me. That was the first day I ever did something for somebody else, not just for me. And that felt good. And I wanted more of that. And I was like, how many other people have those same dark thoughts just like me? And they're holding it in. I'm like, I need to tell my story. And that's when I decided music would be a good way to tell a story and started a band. Hmm. I'm, I'm always so fascinated when I hear that story. Because, I mean, I heard that. Yeah. I've heard your story on the tour. 
you know, every day we'd be up playing and we'd be sharing these stories with students. And yeah. even still to this day, I find myself moved by all these things and how, how you articulate the memories of those times. And, um, you know, you talk about sort of being inspired by, you know, people giving you this, the reality of that you have some control of your life. It's, you're not just a puppet. Yeah. Is there, is there, cause you had to, you had to dig deep in yourself though, too. Is there something that you would say, like I, uh, that you would attribute to that or other than just those good words being spoken to you? Yeah. You know, I got through those times without getting help, which made it a lot harder. And I don't want anyone else to have to do that alone. Mm. Um, talk to the people around you. Don't hold it inside. You know, like we live in a, a world where it's like, especially as guys, you know, we're not supposed to express ourselves, be vulnerable, talk about our emotions. And, you know, now when I tour and I tell these stories, you know, yeah, I've told that story a lot, but I still mean it when I say it. It's like you can tell someone you love them more than once, but it, you could still mean it if it's real. And mm. it's still very real for me. And yeah, I, I just... I just want to tell my stories so that other people don't have to die like I did before they get it, before they start to live, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and don't just chase success, but chase significance. Like we toured with some huge bands, a lot of big shows, and you meet these guys backstage, and some are great, don't get me wrong, but you meet these some of these bands backstage, and you're like, you think they're going to be so fulfilled because they're successful. Living their dream. Yeah, they got everything. And they're some of the emptiest people you'll meet because they never went from success to significance. Mm. And significance is when your story, your life impacts the world around you. Um, so, yeah, we, we were touring with these bands. And then we were doing a show with Finger Eleven in Edmonton, I remember. And there was 12,000 people, let's say, there. And I remember at them at the time, their song Paralyzer was or paralyzed was uh, number one in the U.S. for seven weeks, and I knew that I was a fan of Finger Eleven when they were still called the Rainbow Butt Monkeys, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> so, and they were, I'm like, congrats, guys! Your song's number one in the U.S., and they were still trying to get to that next level, which is, you know, it. You're always trying to get to that next level, and I'm like, man, enjoy it. You're there, mm-hmm. and then we got on stage, and I'm looking, and I remember seeing some guys in the audience. I'm like, that's clearly a band that's here watching us. I'm thinking. I'm looking at Finger Eleven and saying, enjoy it, you're there. And they must be looking at me, enjoy it, you're there. And if you never stop to go, man, this feels good, we're in a good place. You don't enjoy it. Like one of my favorite quotes comes from The Office (laughs) where (laughs) Andrew Bernard says, you know, I wish you knew you were living in the good times before you leave them. You know, uh, the good old yeah, days. Yeah, right. You know? Yeah, if you know, know that you're in the good old days when you're in them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so you probably know better than me. I have a head injury. I have an excuse for so many things. But it was at that show. I just watched it far too many times. That's my problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it was at that show, too, where I was like, you know, we were getting ready to go to the U.S. to do that same nurse party. And, and they were talking Europe and stuff. And I was like, it was fun playing these big shows and crowd surfing. But I'm like, when do I get to, like, really tell my story and then I got offered like a, a nine-month tour going through schools telling my story just me and my guitar and I was like yeah I should do this and everyone thought I was crazy mm. because that means you're, I'm you're walking leaving. away I was gonna owe money I had to refinance my home didn't have a dollar but I felt it was the right thing to do and I started sharing my story and that was for nine months and at the end of the nine months other schools and communities now prisons and reserves started calling and they're going we heard about your impact. Can you come? And 
what was supposed to be a nine month tour turned into 12 years uh, before the pandemic, which was, mm-hmm. that was actually significant. That, that was fulfilling because now your songs and you're telling stories and you can actually see the audience having breakthroughs, mm-hmm. you know? I, think I, I even remember being on the road with you and, and, I think students walk into that atmosphere that you set up with the, the concert and then you, you turn their gym into a, a theater essentially. Yeah. And they walk in and then you can kind of see, and you pull up in this cool tour bus and, and the, the students, they sort of change and, and immediately kind of like what's going on. And they, they, they didn't really know us. I think going in, they yeah. kind of knew a bit about what you were up to. Not but, by the time you and I were doing it. Yeah, but yeah. When, when you walk in, it's a, then then immediately like within like within a song they're they're already in like they they get it they're, they're already big fans immediately and I loved watching that from from where I was watching the audience shift from like who are these guys to immediate fans. Well, it, being a musician, it's, it's a unique thing, and I love the challenge. You know, like when you do a show, people are buying a ticket, so they're already a fan of Donna Merrill, right? Not always. <laughs> <laughs> they got coaxed in. Yeah. Um, but for me, a lot of wives bring their husbands, and then they they just want to go watch a game or something. <laughs> they didn't come to cry. <laughs> um, but you know, for me, it's like I really love the fact that you know, you know, a thousand students come walking in, and and they're going, "Who is this? What is this?" Mm-hmm. But it looks kind of cool. But they're on guard because they don't like presentations. They don't want somebody to come up and say, "Don't do drugs," you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, I get up. And I'd just be vulnerable and I, you know, you, you were part of the shows, but all of a sudden I'm doing family guy voices and, you know, and we're having some fun. And then I tell my story and students can smell BS a mile away and they can tell when you're genuine and they're, they're, they're thinking, what's, what's the catch here? Is this a publicity stunt? Mm -hmm. No, there's no cameras around. Yeah. Is this, how much they get paid to come here? Oh, it's free. Oh, these guys don't charge for this. Oh, they're in debt. Okay, what are they going to sell us? And then we give out our music for free. And they're going, okay, you got us. It's genuine. And, you know, we would do some shows in Toronto where nobody there was fans of rock music, right? And you got to win them over. And I love that because every show, there's not everybody's a fan of rock music. There's country music fans. There's R&B and hip-hop and rap. And, and you got to win them over. And, and prison shows are my favorite. I don't know why. But you got all these guys come in with their feet chained together, and they're you know they sit down the front row, and it starts like this. Sorry if this is hey, not the place for it. All good, all good, man. And that's I love that fire. challenge. I'm like, ooh, I've got to win these guys over. That that's just an adrenaline rush for me. So mm. so I'm like, yeah, we would do these shows, and they'd see it's genuine. Same thing when we started doing reserves. That was always a part of me where I was like, I don't know why, but I felt this this calling to go to you know. So many people will go spend their money and, and, and support, you know, uh, different organizations in Africa, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah. People have no idea what's happening in our own country. Mm-hmm. And, man, when, when we first got to reserves, it's like, ooh, what's the catch? White boy, you know, another white boy coming with a publicity stunt, same thing. And then they see you're genuine. And not only was I welcomed after a while, but I mean, was embraced given my... Spirit name. They call me Bear Chief. Mm. So that's why I tattooed Bear there with Chief across the fingers. You know, uh, it's, it's I haven't seen that one yet. Yeah, it means you're the protect. They call me the protector Bear Chief. Mm. Yayo Enna. I don't know if I think that's in Cree. But, mm. but yeah, it's very cool. When people can tell when it's genuine. 
And then, yeah, we were doing going from school to school. And we couldn't reach the demand anymore. So for four years before the pandemic, we started going to big theaters and even arenas. And we would invite schools. A bunch of schools would come and be part of it. Yeah. Our last show was at the Arena in Medicine Hat. And if a school said, oh, we, can't, we can't afford to come, we're like, it's free. We're like, we can't pay for the school buses. We're like, all right. I told my team, my charity, like we started a charity. And I'm like, okay, we're paying for the school buses and the gas. And we would fly in kids from reserves and stuff. And mm. um, we just like, we would do whatever it took to get the message across. Mm. I love that, man. Yeah. I love the work you're doing. I always love the work you're doing. I want to hear more about that in just a moment. We're just going to take a quick break here. Have you ever thought, I'd love to have a podcast just like this one? Well, I can help. My name is Matt Kundal, and everyone at my company, the Sound Off Podcast Network, had a hand in making this show. Whether it was about the sound, the discoverability, or that you're just enjoying the show, we are all about the detail. If you think you have a podcast in you, reach out to me via email, matt at soundoff.network. Or check out the website and become one of the great podcasts we work with at soundoff.network. So through the work you've done in schools and talk about, you've, you've I know a big part of the topic is somewhat self-harm um, and, and kind of that piece of it. Yeah. Um, I know you've had suicide notes handed over to you and razor blades and, and things like that along the way. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure you've probably lost count by now of how many things you, or, or do you know? Oh yeah, I know. It's 917. That's something right. you cherish those. Numbers. Oh, it the first time it happened was really unique. Um, there was a school in Ontario that had a suicide and they asked, um, Hey Rob, can you come right away? We heard about your you know, effectiveness. We just had a suicide. And on this girl's suicide note, it revealed that she had a pact with one of her friends. Like if you kill yourself, I'll kill myself. And the principal said, we don't know who it is. So we flew out there and then it, it was eerie, man. There's, 800 students, let's say, in front of me, and I'm somebody in front of the audience, or somebody in front of me in the audience was about to take their life, and I don't know where they're sitting. And I'm like, and until that day, I had never talked about the fact that I was suicidal. I just said, this, I had this car accident, this is what happened to me, and make every day count because you're not promised tomorrow, right? That was it. I didn't want to say I was suicidal. I didn't want to go there. That's not fun. And and I thought, what what would people think of me if I revealed that weakness, you know? But now we're in front of this audience, and I'm like, I have to say it. I have to say that I was there. And I got to this point in the show, I'm like, say it, Rob. Say it. And I'm like, oh, I can't say it. I can't say it. What are the students going to think of me? What are the staff going to think of me? What is my team, my band members going to think? I've never said this to anyone. And I was like, I know somebody in this audience is thinking about taking their life. You're not alone. I was there once too, and I braced. I thought what was going to happen, but mm. <laughs> it felt like a thousand pounds off me, just like <sighs> I felt good. And then the engagement between me and the audience, my band members went to another level. Now it's like people come up to you giving me hugs, and then this girl walks up and she's got this old crinkled up note that's you know folded up, and she hands it to me. She goes, "Here." I'm like, "What's this?" She goes, it's my suicide note. I don't need this anymore. And she walked off with the school counselor. That was her. We were called there to find her. And we found her. And I was like, whoa, that was... And I talked with a police officer that I know that focuses on uh, uh, teen suicide. And I said, 
what happened there? That was not fresh. She didn't write that in right while now. I was talking. She had that with her. What was that? And they said, oh, yeah, very rarely does a person write their suicide note when it, the day it happens. They usually write it, carry it with them for two to three months before they take their life, waiting for somebody to push them over the edge or for wait, somebody to reach out and say, you're not alone. And I'm like, really? So it was the next day we're doing another show, and I'm thinking if the stats are true from Kids Help Phone, one in five teenagers had seriously considered suicide in the last 12 months pre-COVID. It's way worse now. So I'm like, well, if one in five kids is suicidal, somebody in the audience is thinking about it. And I said it again the next day. And it was a little easier the second day, you know. I'm like, somebody here is thinking about taking their life. You're not alone. I was there once too. And a guy came up to me, gave me a note. And, yeah, it was 917 notes. And yeah. um, that does not include all the ones that would make a video on YouTube and send us the link or yeah. tag us in a video or a picture on YouTube of ripping it up. And it was like... And we even have a song, uh, Thief of Colors, that we play. And while we while we perform the song, the video is always in sync on the LED walls behind us, you know. And kids would see, you know, other kids ripping up their notes and throwing out their razor blades, just clips that we found on YouTube and stuff of people tagging us. And um, and and people are watching this like, huh, I want to be like that girl in the video. I want to get rid of my note mm. because I way too often the media focuses on the tragedies and i get it because it sells but people need to know that every story of mental illness doesn't end with a suicide not every story of addiction ends with an overdose like we can learn from tragedy but you got to balance that with stories of victory and triumph Mm. and and that's what we try to do and we'll often you know we'll say i'll tell a story we met this girl in this prison eating disorder you know suicidal thoughts and and everybody in the audience like wow i'm like do you want to meet her and then we bring them up on stage to perform with us Uh, because that's another unique thing like this just happened at the mall the other day this girl comes up she's like rob your music means so much to me because you know i i have depression and suicidal thoughts and i'm like oh so you're like me and she's like what what do you mean i was like you hurt deeply but you love deeply too don't you she's like yeah i said you hurt deeply but you can see when others are hurting can't you she's like yeah I was like, yeah, you have what I have, and it sucks sometimes. But you can help a lot of people with that. And I think to myself, isn't it interesting that we get diagnosed with depression? Nobody gets diagnosed with empathy. Because hmm. there's some beautiful parts about being emotional. So I'm like, so I said, do you, so do you paint? Do you dance? Poetry? Are you into music? She goes, yeah, I'm a painter. How would you know? I'm like, you're emotional. <laughs> <laughs> I'm convinced there's a connection between the arts and mental illness. You know it as as an artist. There's something extra in us that we're meant to channel into a song, you know. Mm. And if you keep that inside, it overwhelms you. I before I realized I could channel my emotions into a song, it o- almost overwhelmed me and almost took my life. Like look at Hollywood: Kurt Cobain, Chris Cornell, you know, uh, Chester Bennington. You know, you know, so many artists that. We've got this extra emotion. What are we supposed to do with it? Mm. And it feels like a curse sometimes. Ah, you're not cursed. You're gifted. Channel that, you know. Mm. Man, I can hear you listen to you all day. It Still. sounds like you are. Yeah. I really it? am. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I uh, uh, I want to I want to ask you as you were talking there about what the the notes. Do you ever read them? Oh, every one of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, you know. 
the consistency in the notes. And because I was there once too, a lot of people don't understand what it's like to be there because everybody knows what it's like to struggle with mental health. Mental health is like physical health. There's days when you feel 100%. There's days you feel 70 same with mental health. There's days you feel 100%. There's days you feel 70. Not everybody knows what it's like to go down to 5 and 2%. That's when you have depression and mental illness is a very real thing. And I'm not saying that I'm against medication, all that, when I say you're meant to channel it. You know, like, you know, see a psychologist, whatever you need to do. You know, there's there can be chemical imbalances and all kinds of things. But for us, it's like you're you're not cursed, you're gifted. But when you read these notes, and because I was there once too, I know that people often say suicide is, is a selfish act because you take your pain and you give it to the people around you. And of course, that happens. Mm. If somebody uh, dies by suicide, and I was just with a school on Monday that just uh, lost a student, and yeah, that pain goes to everyone around you. But if you've never been there, you don't realize that the lie in your head is that the most selfless thing you could do is leave. You are a burden to your parents, Mm. to your friends, your family. Why don't you just leave? So you think you're being selfless. You know, so and that's one of the consistencies in the notes. Mm. You know, it's like, hey, you don't have to worry about taking care of me anymore. Like, I'm sorry. Nobody wants to hurt anybody. Mm. It's like, you can feel that. They just don't want to be a burden to the world around them anymore, Mm. you know? Your school curriculum, um, yeah. that started recently? Yeah, well, we did the show, last show at the Medicine Hat Arena. I don't know how many schools were there, but a lot. And we walked off stage and COVID hit. None of us knew, is this going to be two days? Is this going to be two weeks, two months? Right, yeah, we all thought that. Yeah, but I was like, something tells me it's going to be a while before we can do these shows. Because now you can buy a ticket to a show if you choose to go. But when are schools going to allow... 20 schools into a building. You brought my kids in with my daughter yeah. into a venue with 20 other schools. Yeah. So I looked at my team and, and like I said before, I've always said, you know, never want anyone to think this is a publicity stunt, but I'm like, guys, I think it's time we tell the stories that we've collected. So there was a film crew that had done a little piece on me on CBC a few years ago. They were hired by CBC and really loved the guys. I'm like, can we, can you help me? I want to go and find like 10 of these students. Like, where are they now? Students that gave us their suicide notes. And they were like, yeah, let's do this. But like, but we need to tell your story too. I'm like, but I didn't want it to be about me, you know? But they're like, no, we need to tell people who you are first. So that we shot uh, a documentary. They went back to the place I had my car accident. They recreated the scene with actors. It was um, hmm. the same vehicle that I had been in. Yeah, it was really eerie. And I was supposed to walk up on this accident scene where this first responder is holding this kid's head together. And two days before they shot this whole thing and interviewed me, hearing my story for 12 hours, I'd never gone that in-depth before. But two days before we shot all that, my dad passed. So I was really emotional. But it brought something really raw out of me as well. And, uh, And then we, yeah, and then we went around finding some 10 of these students. Like, where are they now? And... Oh, it was so moving for me because mm. I got to see that this message we were giving wasn't just making feel better, people feel better for a day, but it stuck. Mm. You know, people were still here and some gifted people. I shared one of the stories with you, showed you Dylan's story. That's one of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then I put together a team of 
psychologists, social workers, teachers. And, um, and I was like, can you take these episodes of these, these students and let's build kind of a curriculum? Unlike most curriculums where it would be like very media based, right? Uh, we have a lot of great people, producers and uh, video guys on our team. So they took these episodes, like five, six minute episodes of these students. So first, first episode is, this is Rob's story. They watch a music video and then they journal. What was Rob's struggle? What was his breakthrough? How did he get help? And how is he helping other people? Then they watch Dylan's story. What was his struggle? What was his breakthrough? How did he get help? How is he helping other people? Four episodes like mm. that that we have right now. And then, um, uh, and then they, they're asked, like, journal now. What's your struggle? Where could you find a breakthrough? How could you get help? And how mm. could you help other people? And, uh, yeah, we beta tested in four provinces. And uh, now it's available. We're uh, giving it away for free right now, even though it costs us about half a million dollars to build it. Um, but it's uh, available at robnash.ca um, for schools. And it's right now there's six in six provinces that are using it already. Could could anybody check that out, or or is that you have to sign up and? Yeah, it, we have it for schools because we have to pay for licenses for everybody doing it. Right. But um, we're, um, so you know we're we got a team that's you know calling the schools and stuff like that and setting them up. But so, if a school wanted to reach out to you, they could do that at the yeah, robnash.ca. Rob you can see there's a trailer for the curriculum to see what it's about. There's a trailer for the documentary as well. Uh, it's all done. The documentary we just working out what platform we're going to put it on right now and then uh, yeah and then my producers are like my producers that i had with the record deal with live on arrival i was doing a show in vancouver i'm like oh the studio i recorded at it's down the street so i went locked in the door i walked in and they're like all the producers in there like rob nash and they did not like me very much because i because <laughs> you had left the deal because i just yeah. walked away and they didn't know what happened to me and they had a potential to make a lot of money off of me right mm. I said, yeah. So I told them what I'm doing now with schools. I'm like, I'm doing a show at a theater just down the street. You want to come check it out? And they're like, yeah. And it's tough to buy an hour of these guys' time. But we, I know we, <laughs> we went down the, the street. They watched the show. And they're, they're artists. So they're all crying. And they're like, we want to be a part of this. So they've produced my stuff for free since the accident. Mm-hmm. Or sorry, <laughs> since the record deal. Right. And uh, now, um, now they're full-time staff, a few of them. And do my production. So when I said, it's time we share our stories, they're like, how about your new album? Because during this pandemic, I toured so much for 12 years, I didn't have time to write. And they're like, can we share your new music too? Because I've written new 18 new songs, right? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So they started talking with their colleagues and uh, Stephen Stone, the entertainment lawyer, uh, Jeff Rogers, uh, Eric Alper. And then um, and then we they met with Warner. And Warner was like, how do we not help make this happen? So I signed a distribution deal with them, no strings attached. And uh, they're just like, we want to help get this message out there. So yeah, nine of the 18 songs are out now. Um, it's really, really going well. And uh, it's exciting. The new album's called This Is War. This just talks about the mm-hmm. fact that we're at war with an invisible enemy called mental illness. And is, I that, got, is that out? Yeah. Yeah, the, the first nine songs. Okay. And the title track, This Is War, is out. And it was... I got the title. I had kind of worked on something about that a bit once without the concept of an invisible enemy called mental illness. But I was getting an award and I was backstage. And the other three guys getting the award were all wearing their army fatigues and missing limbs. And I'm like, I'm backstage. I'm like, what am I doing here? I'm just a musician. But then they said, 
this next guy's fighting a different war, a war against an invisible enemy called mental illness. And I was like, oh, the artist in me went, I could write about that. So the whole album talks right. about that. It talks about the fact that we're at war with an invisible enemy. Um, and it kind of, in the song, I, I question the fact, like we think in the Western world we've created paradise, especially North America. Everybody wants to live here. But is this the promised land that we think it is? This is where there's the most suicides, most overdoses. So I kind of challenge, like, we've lost our way, you know? And uh, so kind of challenges that. And then, uh, and then, so the whole album kind of has that theme. And then I met with um, uh, the head of the Métis Federation for lunch one day. And then the next day, um, you know, uh, one of the former Grand Chiefs. And for both of them, I'm like, I'm always trying to learn how to represent the Indigenous people because I feel weird about it because I never experienced that life, right? But I'm like, I want to do this justice, and I'm like, I'm kind of apologetic about it. And they, both of them said, I'd lunch with one on, let's say, Tuesday, and the next day, Wednesday, with the other, and they're like, quit apologizing. Like, we need allies, and we don't have a lot. And people listen to you that don't listen to us. We're not sure why you're doing this, but thank you. And then they said, when they said ally, I'm like, ally, that's another war theme. So that's one of the songs in the al- album hmm. called Ally. But it's like, in the album, there's moments where you're on the front lines. There's more moments where you're in triage, and there's moments where you're in, in victory mode, you know, and that's that's kind of the journey. It's like an old school album where the whole album tells a story, not just random songs. You know what I mean? Mm. I'll, let, I'll well, let, let me ask you this: like, um, you know, as I've tried to represent the indigenous people, you know, um, and do do it justice from my perspective, from what I've seen, you know. What what was it like for you? Like, what have you experienced in your life? You grew up in Winnipeg, right? Mm-hmm. What did you see? Did you see a lot of that, you know, the discrimination and racism too? I personally haven't faced a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, I think it's because, I, like, I have Cree and Métis roots on my mom's side, East Coast, Acadian, European roots on my dad's side. My last name is Amaro. I have this sort of, like, olive skin. People thought maybe I was Italian. Right. I didn't know what I was because I wasn't. I didn't get a chance to to learn a lot about that part of my history. My mom was taught to be ashamed of that part of who she was. And, um, and so for me, I grew up just as this like person, my mom would say, I said, what's, what, what's our background? Mom would say, oh, you're Heinz 57. And so to just be like, there's a bunch of things really. Right. So I didn't really have culture. I didn't have an identity in that way. Okay. And it was sort of years later when I was kind of a young man and I started realizing, wait a second, there's this piece in my life that I, that's a part of who I am that I can get on the front lines. There's another army term, get on the front lines and be part of change and maybe build a bridge between people. And because for the longest time I thought I, where I stood was like this no man's land. Like I wasn't white enough. I wasn't indigenous enough. I was just kind of didn't know where I stood. And no man's land is kind of like the most deadliest place where to, to, to exist in the middle of a war. And then I started realizing, wait, it's not no man's land. It's a bridge. And maybe perhaps I could be somebody who's bringing people together. And so my whole mo as an artist as a person has always been to bring people together and so for me it's because i I didn't grow up with seeing a lot of that hatred and i didn't feel like i was i didn't feel marginalized personally but i did see it definitely around in my neighborhood i grew up in the north end here in winnipeg yeah um i saw it a lot but i wasn't personally the victim of a lot of it right for me yeah yeah because yeah even uh, like you joined us at least for one show on a reserve you know and i remember you know just you know 
often they'll make you a meal and stuff like that and you're like yeah i grew up on these types of sandwiches <laughs> and stuff like it was you know whereas johnny is used to like three course meals yeah, yeah you it definitely know? wasn't you know, bologna on on bannock yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was, but because you yourself you know we've talked recently where you you want to get out and tell more of your story and would that uh, include that part of your life uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely been a, a part of the trajectory for me as well, you know, just helping people to not be ashamed of who they are. Right. And and in that way, service is, is definitely a part. I've started saying less I'm in the entertainment industry and more in the service industry. Oh, that's cool. Like my heart has always been, and I think that's why you and I jive so well together. Yeah. For when we jive. <laughs> but uh, is is the fact that we, I sense this attitude of service in you, yeah. you know, and for me, it's it's definitely a big part of all of this is, is just to serve people. Like, cause, cause I know people out there listening, watching right now, they're going through stuff and yeah, I yeah. think they're going through a fire. Yeah. And I, I know a piece of your story. That's a part of the fire. And that's that the, yeah. the major accident that led, that could have been really detrimental, could have ended your life, but yeah. you just chose to use it in, as a, as a, as a, as a pivotal point that yeah. when you look back at it, it's a pivotal point to change for you. It's funny. I was on one interview and at the end of the guy goes, you know, Rob, it was good that you were hit by that semi. <laughs> And I was like, mm, screw nope. you, buddy. I'm like, not really. <laughs> and he goes, well, look what you've done with it. I'm like, the semi didn't make me do this. He goes, but if you go back in time, you'd do it all over again, wouldn't you? And I'm like, no, I don't think I would. Because like everybody, some people think you have to hit rock bottom to learn a life lesson. And you can learn lessons by hit, hitting rock bottom. But you can also listen to the stories around you. And he goes, well, you're young. One day you'll realize you had to go through all of this to be who you mm. are. And I was like, if you can convince me by the end of this interview that I had to get hit by a semi to think this way, I'm like, I'll stop my tour, I'll sell all of my guitars, I'll get a semi license, and I'll start running people over. <laughs> He's like, well, well, don't do that. I'm like, well, you're saying I had to get hit by a semi to think this way. I don't think that's the case. That's why I tell my story. That's why you tell your story. We've all got stories. We can learn from each other, you know? He goes, well, you know, uh, do you know Rick Hansen? I'm like, yeah, the guy in the wheelchair. He goes, yeah. He goes, well, he told me that he's glad he's in a wheelchair because of what he's been able to do with it. I was like, that says a lot about Rick Hansen, not about wheelchairs. <laughs> not everyone in a wheelchair has done what Rick Hansen has done. Right. Good for him. But that's not an automatic. You yeah, know, yeah. He had to make some decisions. Hmm. I'm glad that you made the decisions you've made, man. I really right? appreciate you uh, coming on here to talk. There's one question I have left that I ask all my guests. Oh, boy. Um, is there uh, just <laughs> maybe for me more than anything else? Because I'm always looking to see what's inspiring you. Is there a book? Is there a podcast? A documentary? Or, or like something where you draw inspiration from? Could be music. Is there something that you listen to that you watch that you read that you could kind of point me towards? Yeah, to be honest with you, I uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, other than the office, other than the office. <laughs> Okay, now I have no idea. No, you know, I, I'm listening to podcasts nonstop. And, uh, you know, it was interesting. Growing up in a, in a religious home, I, uh, I was maybe 5% convinced that maybe there, was, uh, maybe there was some truth to it, you know, and uh, just kind of played along. But I woke up from that coma and I was 100% convinced it was real. There was something more to this world than what we see here. Mm. And... Uh, but I didn't know why. And then my fam- somebody in my family told me that God was mad, so he spanked me with a semi. So now I was just bitter about it. But um, once I realized, you know, that it was my decisions, I didn't have to be mad at God or fate or anything like that. Um, you know, I embraced the, you know, I think that we're created physical beings 
mental part, there's the emotional part, but there's the spiritual part too. So I'm I'm always trying to soak in more spiritual stuff, but you'd be shocked if you look at what I what I watch because I watch a lot of Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and Chris Hitt, Christopher Hitchens, hmm. uh, all you know, atheists. Because I'm waiting for somebody to say something that would convince me that what I've felt and now I have memories of what I saw in death that I'll write about one day. And I'm trying to wait for somebody to say something that convinces me that that what I saw and what I feel inside and the promptings that I get aren't spiritual. I can't find it, but I like listening to it and hearing the holes in it and going, yeah, that didn't convince me, and that doesn't line up with what I saw here. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's I love people that are just willing to... I like listening to both sides of every picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, We live... We're so polarized right now, um, more than ever. And so, yeah, I just... I love... One of the issues I have with my brain injury is uh, my my short-term visual memory is really damaged. So if I read something, page one, page two, page three, by page four or five, page one is gone and I have to start over. So, but in the same way a blind person, their hearing gets lit up. Um, If I hear something, I can watch a movie and quote it back to you. I can listen to a song and sing along after two listens, you know. So it's interesting how that was compensated, but... So I don't read a lot, but I'm always listening to podcasts and listening uh, to music and stuff. That's that's how I get fed with everything. And mm-hmm. you watch everybody walking around, especially young people. They all got earphones in their ears. You know, what are you listening to? You know, because um, mm-hmm. better be careful of what you let go from here down to here. You know, you got to guard this part of you because if you let the wrong voices in, you can do some damage. You know, mm-hmm. you always give me lots to think about, man. Appreciate you, Rob Nash. You're my favorite, Donnie. (laughs) As I always say, it takes a village to run things here at Through the Fire. And I want to thank my village. Executive producer, Sarah Burke. Administrators, Lori Brown and Alan Grayeyes. Video and audio design by Chris Godry and his team at 44 Films. Feisty creative for their design work. Social media support by Johnson Design Company. And last, but far from least, I want to thank our technical producers, Matt Kundle and Evan Serminski from the Sound Off Media Company. I look forward to sharing more great conversations just like this one on the next Through the Fire. You see the light. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent. Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.